The real estate industry is ever evolving with new challenges presenting themselves daily. We are proud to introduce you to the individuals who answer the call. Join us as Tyler Kasich sits down with another key player in that game on today's George Mason Alumni Spotlight. I grew up in Taiwan, um, I guess until I was um, in high school. And then I came to the States, um, <clears throat> attended a Quaker boarding school, um, and then went to college here. What was your experience with the Quaker school? It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. It was my first experience of America. And it probably a very different one because Quakers are basically hippies. So you thought like everyone acted like that? You yes. thought that was a norm in America? It was very normal to have shaggy hair and you know, we all, you know, we learned how to chop down trees and collect honey and all kinds of stuff. After his time at boarding school, Roger went to Bates College for political science with a minor in Japanese. So what was your plan for after college? I was attracted to AU because of the, um, they, had a, they had a really good clinic program. Basically students um, would represent clients, um, real life clients. Oh, okay. Uh, and so, so, so the clinic's name was International Human Rights Clinic. And so I got, you know, into that program. So I was representing asylum seekers uh, coming to the States. I was representing um, refugees in Sierra Leone during the Civil War. Um, I had a few, um, actually several asylum seekers from all over the world. Uh, different people who um, were persecuted politically. After his time at law school, Roger couldn't find a job in his preferred field, so he tried his hand at property law. After that, I started looking into title companies um, to, to see, and, and real estate law firms, to try to get a job. And I said, really cold call a bunch of places, and one of them decided to call me back. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so, so it was this little firm in Vienna, Virginia, uh, Tate Bywater and Fuller. They had a title company called uh, Equitile. So I worked there for about two years. Okay. Um, just closing crazy deals. Uh, commercial or, or residential? Uh, or what? A couple of commercials, but mostly they were residential. Okay. Um, and, and so that was sort of the go-go years of residential real estate, you know, between 2003 to 2006, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it was crazy. Man, you keep having bad timing. It was before the, um, you know, the real estate bubble burst. It was, it was crazy. I mean, I remember there was a ton of refinancing going on because interest rate had never been so low. So there was this, you know, urge to refinance every six months or so. So we would have clients that come in and just, you know, and, and also at the time there were there were a lot of different financing companies many of them don't exist anymore yeah. um, they had these crazy payment plans that the people who signed had no business of signing um, and you know my job was to explain to them what those documents meant um, many times after I do that they don't sign because they felt like their house was this ATM bank that they could just yeah. withdraw every once in a while. And they believe, believe the dream that, you know, the value can only go up. It can never go down. Yep. yep. There's no way it could possibly go down. So, I mean, I think my record was 23 settlements in a day. 
During this time, did you ever stop to think that, you know, something could be wrong? I don't think it was very obvious. Uh, I, was, I, I wasn't in the real estate industry as a, I guess, a participant. I was an attorney, so I was advising clients. So, yeah. so yes, you know, it was great to, you know, to think about it, it you know, it should have been obvious. But I think in the midst of all that, it was it was hard to see. Yeah. But um, it was very strange, you know, when you have a client that comes in, and you know, I remember there was this guy who said, you know, my mortgage broker is helping me make a lot of money, and so I he explained to me how, and he said, well, you know, we bought all these houses, and and we. Every six months or so, the value would double. And this, I mean, this was Northern Virginia, like, and it's not, it's like Manassas Park or something, yeah. you know, and then, and then, and then it was just sort of crazy that you could do this and it didn't seem sustainable, but I, at that point, I think I wasn't knowledgeable enough to, exactly. to pinpoint that there's a big problem here. Were you affected by the bubble? So I, uh, no, so I, um, it was work that I felt like I couldn't really learn too much more uh, because the business, the, the company had really focused on settlements. It was great, you know, but the thing, you know, we were busy, but the thing is there wasn't much growth. So at one point I decided, you know what, if this is, and it was very stressful. So I decided to find a different job. So um, I ended up working at um, um, these, um, big law firms in DC. Hogan Hartson was one of the ones that I worked at the longest. Um, I was doing, um, basically, it's called discovery work. Um, but what it, So what it is is whenever there's a litigation or some sort of big merger, mm -hmm. uh, there was a ton of documents to be reviewed. Uh, so they would contract like 300, 400 attorneys and find this office space somewhere rent a bunch of PCs and then you sit there and look at documents and click. The problem is, you know, I felt like my brain was definitely shrinking. So, I mean, that's, that's, when, um, that's when I listened to a lot of audiobooks and started sort of hatching up some sort of business plans. Uh, I knew this wasn't something that I could do long term. So when you were doing that, was there a part of you that like was yearning to get back into real estate? I think a lot of real estate people uh, or sort of mid-career transition to real estate people, you know, read the same book. It's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, yeah. you know, and that, you know, it sort of made me realize, well, you know, it's great to be a professional, but, you know, the better you are, the more successful you are, the busier you get. So I wanted to figure out a way to sort of decouple the money and time, you know, um, connection. Yeah. And I wanted to figure out how to invest in real estate. Um, and, and I remember from my previous job as an attorney, uh, real estate attorney, you know, um, a lot of what I did was um, analyzing a situation and then I would advise the client what to do. Um, or give, give them the options, but I never made any decisions. And so that was kind of bothering me too. So, you know, at that point in my life, I wanted to, you know, because of my daughter being the sort of the motivation, I felt like, okay, I want to do something that, you know, I own up to the decisions. Okay, if I make mistakes, 
forget it. It's still me. Yeah, there's only one person to blame. There's only one person. Yeah, and then also I wanted to do something that um, I could create, create something, um, and that would um, that would be more lasting. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to build a system that would allow me to have passive income even if I don't have a job because you know as you can tell up to this point I sort of had to create my jobs or you know I, or I was always I was never sort of a w2 employee I always had to sort of make my own way yeah. and and so that process actually helped me realize oh you know it's not too bad I could always figure something out so I didn't I didn't I didn't feel the need to get a W-2 job because I feel like, okay, stability is, you know, people's definition of stability is different. Uh, for me, I can always figure something out. Who drove this, you know, entrepreneurial spirit in you? I think, I think there's something in me that I never, I felt like I was not employable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't really want to work for anybody. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, so so I, so I think it's you know maybe it's my fault. I just <laughs> so after your career in clicking, where'd you end up? Um, when my daughter um, was about four months, five months, my wife went back to work. Okay. Um, part time, and she but she had a condition. She said, uh, "I want to go back to work. I love what I do, but I also don't want to put her in daycare." So I was working full time at the time and uh, clicking. So I thought, you know, very high we, paid clicker. Yeah. How do we do this, right? And then, and then, um, you know, we both need to make mortgage payments and stuff. And then, then I thought, well, what if we were to be? Um, what if I were to work part time, and and take care of her part time? So for the next three and a half years, I was a part time stay at home dad. Um, so I was working, I was uh, working two days and then spending three days at home with my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of, you know, the first you know year of a child's life, they sleep a lot. So it allowed me to really think about how I wanted to, um, how I wanted to start my own business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I knew, I knew I wanted to do real estate. So I thought, what do I, how do I do this? Um, there wasn't, you know, so we, we have some, we had some capital, uh, but then I also um, discussed with my family. And I said, you know, hey, what if we were to build something for the family that, you know, that can not necessarily pass down, but just, just create some sort of residual income for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, see where it goes. Um, and I said to them, I said, hey, but I'm just this lawyer guy who doesn't want to practice law anymore. And I, but then I said, but do you trust me? Yeah. And they said, they do. So I said, okay, so give me some time to figure this out and let's build something. Uh, so, so I was able to, um, you know, basically get enough capital to start something. Um, so it was 2007 when I started my company, uh, investing in real estate. So. Couldn't have been a worse time. <laughs> yeah. I know it was brilliant. <laughs> so, could you uh, do you mind going into some of your first deals and what were you, what were you really looking at? Sure. So, so this goes back to my real estate attorney days. I had this client who would come in uh, twice a month 
um, and he would make $100,000 in between. Um, and so I would do their, his settlement to buy and then I would sell his um, property uh, you know, a month later. And so he was literally flipping houses in the real term, like, you know, definition of it. It's like he didn't do anything to them, but he was just right in the market, you know. Um, and then, but then, you know, he got into some rehabbing uh, type of business too. So he would, he would fix it up. You know, these would take a little longer, maybe three, four months, and he'll make a little more money. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, hey, there's something wrong here. I, I spend my entire, you know, days just holding your deals together because a lot of these deals are kind of complex. There's issues, title issues, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I make like maybe 200 bucks, you know, <laughs> what's going on here. So he said to get an education. I said, okay, you know, I went to law school and everything. So what else do I need? Right? Yeah. He said, well, you need like a real education in real estate. And so he introduced me to go to these um, sort of real estate investment clubs. Um, so I started attending some of those uh, and a lot of it was fluff. So I, I knew that wasn't how I wanted to waste my money. Uh, so what I did was um, I thought about what I knew. Uh, I knew legal documents, you know, so I knew loan documents from my experience. So I quickly identified um, investors who really do business rather than just market. You know, so so a guy, uh, so one of the investors I befriended is, uh, you know, he had been doing flips for a long time, and I knew he was pretty successful because he would um, he would discuss it in sort of substantive terms of what he was doing, and so I became friends with him, and I said, hey, can I fund your next deal? You know, because a lot of these flip deals are funded by hard money lenders. So I said to him, I'll give you the best deal you can get among all the hard money lenders you have work with. And, but you know, what I need is I need open book. I need to see exactly what you're doing. I need to shadow you. And so, so the next deal came along, I, I jumped in and did it with him. You know, I wanted to put some real money at risk and, and, and sort of understand the process. Um, so I, you know, I work with, um, you know, I work with attorneys to make sure the title is clean and everything. So I realized, hey, I could control this property with just a piece of paper, you know, and not having to deal with a lot of the ownership issues. Um, so that's sort of my first um, foray into real estate investing as a lender. I think the thing is, as a lawyer, uh, when you train as a lawyer, you think worst case scenarios and you're like afraid of a lot of things. I'm very risk averse as an as a entrepreneur too, but I knew that I could sort of gr slowly grow my risk tolerance. Uh, so, you know, I figured, okay, this is what I can do. If I were to lend an investor, um, you know, 65% uh, loan to value ratio, if the market crashes, it has to go down 35% before I start having to worry, right? So that's one thing. And then the second thing is I knew I didn't have the skills and experiences to fix a house. Um, so why don't I work with somebody who's more experienced and learn vicariously through that and have him pay me while I'm doing that. Uh, so that was the idea. 
Um, and it turned out to be a very fruitful experience. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still very good friends with the guy. I actually just did another loan with him last month. Oh, nice. So, so it's become a lasting relationship. A lot of times people look at hard money interest rates. It's rather high compared to conventional banks. But what it is is convenience and speed and service. So for my friend who does this, uh, he does probably three or four houses at a time and he's very, okay. very efficient. So he would be in and out of a deal in like four months. You know? So what he pays is basically my closing costs and then you know, like three or four percent mm -hmm. of the money that he borrowed from me. After a while of learning, Roger tried his hand at flipping a house on his own. This was 2008, yeah, around 2008. Um, and then it's kind of funny, this is the only flip I've ever done um, because I made $5,000. It took me eight months. And that's when I realized I'm not good at this stuff. <laughs> Why, what, what was the reasoning behind that? I think there was a lot of issues that I didn't see ahead of time. I didn't understand, so I didn't understand zoning. So there was an existing, so the house had an existing garage that had um, basically encroached on um, the setback. So I figured, okay, we'll just, um, you know, and it was dilapidated, that structure. So we, I figured, okay, I'll just, um, I'll just rebuild that. And, you know, because it was already there, probably be okay. You know, and this Grand is man. funny, I'm an attorney, I should have looked into that. So I built it and then, <clears throat> so this is just one of the mistakes I made on that deal. Just you one. Know? So I, I rebuilt it, you know, it was nice and everything. And then, and then I tried to get the uh, occupancy permit and that's when they told me, oh no, you're encroaching. So you gotta cut that corner off um, <laughs> or, or knock it, you know, take it down. So I actually had to cut a corner out of that structure. I didn't lose money, but you know, I realized, hey, this is not the best use of my time. I wanted to build a time-efficient business model. Uh, lending was great because it was just paperwork, you know. So, but I really wanted to get into building uh, because I felt like that was the next step of my growth. Um, so after the making $5,000 in eight months, I, you know, I found a project that um, I wanted to really do. Uh, this is actually a new construction. So um, in South Arlington, uh, bought a piece of land with an ugly house on it. Um, and I thought, well, I don't have, I still don't have the skills and the experience of building. Um, but what if I could do modular? So I did a, um, I did a modular home. Uh, even the foundation was modular, uh, just panelized. Um, and so, so then it became more of a coordination. So how do I coordinate, you know, uh, the crane contractor, the build, you know, put it all together, um, and then just have a couple handymen help me finish up the project in the end. So, so that one went pretty well. You know, it took me six months or so, um, and we made way more money than the five thousand. So this was actually two toward, towards the end of two thousand eight, I think, or two thousand nine, I think. So market had already tanked. Okay. Um, and when I sold the house, I put it on the market to, I think it was a, that blizzard of 2009, like it's really February. Okay. Um, but because, you know, because of the, 
it was a brand new house and it was built really well because it was modular. Um, and in that community, this was a community with, um, you know, houses that are somewhere around $350,000. My house was, um, I listed for five ninety nine. Good Lord. And I thought, okay, let's see what happens because my, the idea was that I built a house that's not like any, any other house around here. So if you want a house of this quality, you had to go to a different zip code. Right. So I was trying to capture maybe a buyer who can't quite afford a house in a different neighborhood because at, at a different neighborhood for this quality of house, you probably have to pay 700, Yeah. you know? And so, you know, so in the middle of the blizzard, we did, we, I was able to sell this house in six weeks. So, and it was a recession too. So it worked out. So Roger, what brought you to George Mason? So at this point, my brother was working with me. Um, and I, I said to him, I said, hey, uh, this, is, this was fun, we made some money, uh, but let's not build just any other house again, because anyone could do that, right? So, so this is when I thought, okay, why don't we go really green, okay? Um, so, I, so we started um, planning this um, uh, passive house, that's what it's called. It's a, it's a German standard for um, um, high performance um, homes. So we took a course doing that, and that's when I sort of got really deep into building technology, green building, uh, materials, and all of those things. Um, and so, you know, we did this project in 2009, 2000, actually started in 2010, I think, 2010, 2011, um, in, also in Arlington, South Arlington, right by Columbia Pike. So we, you know, this was a big gamble. We spent about a million dollars on this house, thinking that it would sell like hotcakes because nobody else builds like this. Um, Can I ask real quick? That was that was all cash. There was no debt. At that point, it was all cash. Yes. And um, <clears throat> so then, you know, but the thing is, market wasn't there. So uh, we we put on the market for one one and a quarter. Um, we got a lot of interest just because it was the most efficient home in Virginia, basically, at that time. Um, a lot of press about it, but then, you know, when it came to somebody buying it, people were, people, you know, were skeptical because, you know, it was just, it was just something so new that they couldn't, they couldn't quite understand. Um, so we ended up renting that home to, um, to a family that worked for the Canadian Embassy. Um, but <clears throat> that made me realize, hey, I took a really big risk and I was okay in the end because I got rental money. You know, my plan B worked, plan A didn't work. But how do I diversify from this model? Because I can't make mistakes like this too many times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that's when I thought, okay, maybe I need more education. And, and at first I wanted to go to architecture school, but then I realized, hey, I could hire an architect. Yeah. You know, I couldn't hire a developer. Uh, and I, I found Mason. Uh, I think what Mason did for me was I realized, oh, there are many ways to use this money. You know, it's <clears throat> then, you know, when you borrow it from the bank, you, you, you're able to, you know, using some leverage, you're, you're able to invest in different things. 
um, that may be more profitable, you know, to mm -hmm. do and less work. So, you know, at first I wasn't sure, um, you know, what I was looking for. I knew I wanted to figure out a way to diversify from my one house at a time method. <laughs> um, and, but I just wanted to see what's out there. And, and, and I wanted to understand commercial real estate. Um, so initially I was just absorbing and, and quickly I realized, hey, the, you know, education is great, but the value is in building relationships. You know, Mark Hassinger said to, I think one class, I'll never forget, he said, hey, you know, I've been in the industry for decades, I can introduce you to anybody. But it's up to you to build those relationships. You know? so, so I, I took that advice to heart. And uh, I was never really a good networker, uh, I would say before that. And then I realized, oh, this is what you gotta do. You gotta, you know, you gotta really build relationships. It's not just about passing business cards out. Yeah. You know, so I grab, you know, I gravitated towards sort of building business and personal relationships with, with developers in the area. And, and being a student is awesome because you can knock on any door and say, oh, I'm a student in real estate, and they'll talk to you, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's sort of initially how I started building these relationships. I wanted to diversify from my single family portfolio. So, so while I was a Mason, you know, with <clears throat> financing and just starting to assemble equity, I started buying up more residential homes. So at some point, at one point we had about 16 units, um, you know, houses and, and apartment units. Um, and cash flow was great, but I felt like management was a, was a headache. So how I wanted to see, okay, can we, can I somehow get out of this management nightmare? Um, so you were personally managing it? You didn't want to... My brother was doing it. But, um, but, you know, it was still difficult to do uh, because, you know, it'd be like 16 houses all across Northern Virginia, you know, so, so that's a lot of work. Um, and so we decided, you know what, maybe we need to look into multifamily. So Daniel presented an opportunity and we ended up uh, putting some money, placing some money in that project in Richmond. Let's talk about the legal part first. I always read the legal documents to see how things are split in terms of risk, power, and money, okay? And every situation is about these three things. Um, so as a limited partner, a lot of times you have uh, very little power because you're not driving the ship, okay? And then you have, you have some money uh, because you're getting paid first, you're a preferred investor, uh, preferred prefer, um, equity partner, right? Um, and then, but then you have very little control over the situation. Um, so I would say depending on the kind of investor you're working with, I would, I would sort of adjust my expectations um, in each scenario. So, for example, I also work with, you know, more established investors uh, and developers. Um, you know, and when I work with 
these guys, you know, they may own like 39 shopping centers in the area. You know, I know they have way more control over data, over markets, um, and they have way more experience than I do, especially retail. Retail is a crazy, crazy game. You know, I don't know how that works. Uh, I have I have rudimentary understanding from from MRED, you know, and I can analyze the financials. Uh, but I need to make sure that okay, you know, in this situation, I don't really want too much power because they can do it way better than I can. But in that situation, I need to make sure that okay, I know these people really well and that I can trust them. You know, so you sort of research on track record. And obviously, personal relationship matters a lot. You know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm placing my money with a friend now. You know, how do I make sure he's going to, um, he or she is going to manage it well? Um, and I don't want it to affect our personal relationship, you know. Um, and, then, and then you need to make sure you get adequate return because I have investors to answer to too. So I need to make sure, okay, is it, is it uh, preferred returns or is it tax benefits that we want? Uh, so it depends on sort of a mix of issues. Uh, so you have to look at all of that. Um, and I think every equity assembler, that's kind of what I do now, has different ways to, to look at this stuff. Um, and we're not like Wall Street guys that just puts down a ton of money and sort of plays all these controls on different things. Um, you know, we, we're basically a small family shop and, and we will work with people, um, but, you know, a lot of it is personal relationships. Roger, can you tell us about your foray into the Airbnb space? At this point, you know, I, I went to Paris uh, with family and <clears throat> stayed at an Airbnb because we had 14 people. And it was a really good experience. We were able to find a place that, that was very central, uh, had more room for everybody. And so a week later when I came back, I thought, you know, why don't we try this Airbnb thing, see if we could get more return on, you know, on our investment. But we had no data on this. You know, we didn't really know what would be the price point, uh, sort of a per night price point to, to rent this at. Um, but we, we thought, okay, maybe it'll be more profitable than long-term rental. So, so we decided to convert one unit. We furnished one unit, went to Ikea, bought a bunch of furniture, um, you know, set it up, put it on Airbnb. And this was just one of the three units. Um, and we tried it and, you know, it was very fast. Like, I think the third, the third day that we put it on Airbnb, we got a booking. Um, and then that's when we're like, crap, this works, right? So how do we make sure that we have a management system, we have a person uh, who is responsible to and reliable to do the turnovers, basically cleaning services and things like that. So, so it became a logistic issue, you know? Um, and then because we thought, okay, the money works, we started thinking about turning the other two units into Airbnbs as well. So eventually we were able to turn all of them. But, you know, legal issues are always a problem. So we researched this, you know, I knew that 
uh, Commonwealth of Virginia had recommended, you know, to all the jurisdictions, uh, you know, charge five percent for transient occupancy. That's that's what it's called. Okay. And this is this is a law that's been around forever. Okay, this is nothing new. Airbnb, actually, if you think about it, it's nothing new. There were boarding houses and stuff in the past too. So short-term rentals is nothing new. But what it is is you have a lot of hotel lobbies. Of course, that, yeah. That do not like that because yeah, we do operate at a slight disadvantage because we don't have all the you know overhead and things overhead, like that. All yeah. this, uh, and but it, it is a different experience, you know. Um, so, but I look in, you know, so I think strategically, I mean, on a legal sense, you need to make sure that there's no, uh, there's always going to be some regulation coming down the pike, but you need to be aware of that. So, you know, I've told, I've told the town that, Hey, um, just let me know if there's conversations about this coming up. I just want my voices heard. Um, but also Occoquan is its own incorporated town. Okay, it technically is part of Prince William County, but it has reserved certain authorities over over its town, um, and zoning is one of those. So, so, so land use is you know is still within town, um, and you know so. But on on a sort of a practical way of talking about this, before I was here, there was really no place to stay, so. People would come here and they would shop, have dinner, and go home. But now they stay for days or weeks. I have a person who's staying for three weeks upstairs, you know, and they shop here. They spend a lot of money here. Because the thing is, okay, outside of this area, um, in this area, like just immediately outside of the town of Aquan, you have a few hotels to stay in, but they're not very nice. You know, they're sort of your commuter hotels. Um, so people like to stay here because, you know, we have nice facilities, we have washer dryer, we have a full kitchen, so you have a lot more amenities. And then it's a walkable retail town. Oh yeah, the location alone is yeah. amazing. So, so it's great, you know, so, so we have guests from all over the world uh, for various reasons. Sometimes it's tourists, sometimes it's people who are on short term. Sort of assignments at Quantico or Pentagon, uh, all kinds of different things. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the George Mason Alumni Spotlight. If you've ever considered a future in real estate development and you want to learn more about what George Mason has to offer, go online to gmu.edu or you can just search GMUMRED. That's GMUMRED to learn more.